I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad you're with us. And so if you have got your Bible, I want to invite you to take it. Turn with me to the book of Jonah. Jonah is one of those minor prophets and uh, uh, one of those books that uh, you may not be able to find so easily. But if you look in your uh, latter part of your Old Testament, there between Obadiah and Micah, uh, you will find a, in my Bible, a two-page short little book called Jonah. We're going to work through this book over the next several weeks and talk about God's subversive servant, um, a man, a prophet of God who, who was used of God mightily in some early days in his life. And then the story that we're going to read through, we're going to see that he began to subvert the will of God for his life and how God wanted to use him. And um, it's going to be a good study. Looking forward to it. You know, um, one of the worst experiences that uh, the world one of the worst experiences I guess, in the world is the helplessness that one would feel out at sea. Uh, there's a reason that the ancient Hebrews, who were a land people, uh, used to view the, the ocean, used to view the seas as nothing more than just a chaotic mess. Uh, for instance, a couple weeks ago, I was uh, with my family when we were at the beach and joined a few days, kind of a little downtime, a little R&R with some friends and enjoying uh, the surf there, and on one particular morning, the tide was low, and the waves were, were, were high. They were big, which made for some really good boogie board action, and uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a flyover country guy. Never, you know, don't go to the beach, but maybe once or twice a year, so when I get out there, I don't really know what I'm doing, but that particular day, it was, it was good. I felt like I was a professional boogie boarder, whatever that would be, but it was, it was fun. At the same time, there was a lot of dolphins out there swimming around us, and so uh, because the surf or the tide was low, we could go out further, which allowed us, I guess, to get closer to the dolphins. So I had the bright idea of swimming out even further than where we were standing and trying to catch some waves and to get closer to the dolphins. I wanted to take a closer look at Flipper. I grew up watching that show, and so I wanted to catch a, a closer look at the dolphins. And I was able to get fairly close to them. It was pretty amazing. They're swimming all around me, and it was almost like I was on a, an excursion without the expense, and it was really, really cool. So I stayed out there for about 10, 15 minutes, I, I guess. It's what it seemed like to me. It might have been longer than that. Not quite sure, but uh, I know that uh, I was out there for a while, and I kept looking back to the shore, and, and I saw people kind of raising their arms for a while, and so I don't know what they're trying to tell me to come back or if I was out too far or what, but it was obvious that uh, I was moving further and further down the beach. If you've been to the beach at all, you know that that uh, tends to happen. So I decided it's probably time to go in, and I'd seen enough, and so I started paddling back, and I paddling back, and paddling back, and it just seemed like I was making no progress whatsoever. And so I began to get tired, and so I got off, and I would swim a little bit, and then I'd get back on the board and kick my feet for a little bit, and uh, just went nowhere. I wasn't moving. In fact, I began to think, I'm not going toward the shore. I'm, coming, I'm going away from the shore. I'm being sucked out to sea. And so at this point, I decided, well, I'm not making any headway swimming. And the last time I got off the board, I could touch. And so I'm just going to get off the board. I'm going to walk back in to the beach. And so I did that. And boy, I went way down over my head. I was obviously much further out. I was out in the deep over my head. So there's no way I was going to walk back. And I became a little nervous. I began to get a little nervous at this point. Not, not that I was going to drown because I had a boogie board. And uh, unless I was to lose grip of that, I was going to be safe there, but I began to get, be a little nervous because it didn't seem like I was going to be able to make it back on my own. And who wants to be the guy who has to get rescued by the lifeguard, even when he's holding a boogie board in his in his hand? 
But I decided to kind of calm down a little bit and, you know, I'm going to use the current to my advantage, begin to swim with it, paddle with it. And finally, after a long, long, long travail in the water, I made it to shore, sucking wind, had to walk a long ways up the, the beach to get back to where everyone else was. I will never forget the helplessness I felt in that moment being kind of sucked out to sea, wondering if I was ever going to be able to make it back on my own. And so today, as we begin this new sermon series, working through the experience of a prophet who also found himself adrift in the sea, we're going to talk about this guy named Jonah. Jonah is this biblical story that has fascinated people for thousands of years. And typically the first thing a person thinks of when he or she hears the name of Jonah is a whale, right? I mean, we grew up, if you grew up in church, you grew up uh, learning about Jonah and the whale. And this dramatic tale with its unusual features, however, does not or, or does more than just capture our attention. It, it speaks to our hearts. God wants to speak to our hearts through this book. The message here in Jonah searches us in a special way because it's so similar to our own experiences. What we see in the life of Jonah is all too often what we see in our own lives. Jonah is the story of a man who is on the run from God. He is a man who's seeking not just to run, but to subvert the will of God for his life. It traces not only the path of the prophet's journey, but it also unravels the inner workings of his, of his heart. We're going to see uh, the Bible describe his, his fears, his motivations, his passing moods. Human behavior as we know it has never changed. And so believers today are still experiencing the very same things that Jonah experienced all the way back when this story took place. Like Jonah, we too at times work to subvert the will of God. And so as we walk through these 48 verses over the next several weeks, we're going to discover the true character of God. We're going to be reminded of the role that we play in the lost people of the world, the lost people around us being saved, and we're going to learn the dangers of rebelling against God. We're going to see that God it means business when he tells us to go and to do something. And so this morning, as we kick off this series, I believe it's important to get a good feel of the book. Uh, hopefully most of us have read through this book before, but maybe if this is your first time, uh, this is going to be a good opportunity for you to sort of get a, a, a good overview of what this book is all about. You see, Jonah is so much more than the story about a big fish. In fact, the fish itself plays a very small role in the plot of this story. The message of Jonah is simply one of subversiveness. God wants us to see Jonah's rebellion and his deliberate attempts to subvert the will of God in ourselves. That's what God wants us to see. He wants us to see in the mirror of Jonah's life ourselves and how we have a tendency to run, how we have a tendency to undermine what God is seeking to do. The prophet was called and commanded to preach repentance to his enemies, but what we see Jonah doing is literally going in the opposite direction. And so let's skim through these four chapters real quick by reading some of what was taking place. Look with me there in John, or Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled their cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. Verse 6 tells us that the captain went down to arouse him, to wake him up. Look at verse 7. They bring him up to the top deck and they begin to discuss. They say to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made this sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said, verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. Jonah goes on to tell them that he's the reason that the storm is raging. And if they would simply throw him over the side of the boat, then everything would be okay. Verse 15, they hear him. They decide to follow his instructions and they pick up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah, chapter 2, verse 1, prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. It seems that when he was in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights, Jonah began to come to himself. He realized the situation, and he begins to confess that to the Lord. And the Lord hears, verse 10 of that chapter. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Revival, spiritual awakening began to break out in the city when they heard the judgment coming upon them, and people began to repent of their sin, turn from their wickedness, and turn to God. This went all the way up to the king, and he issues a decree that everyone should seek the Lord. Verse 10 tells us, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Well, Jonah is not very happy with this, and what we see is his moods beginning to change. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
God and Jonah begin to have a little dialogue, and Jonah continues to kind of throw some tantrums. And through the next several verses, we begin to see more and more of the heart of God for lost people and more and more of the wicked heart of the prophet of God. And then the book ends with verse 11, God saying to Jonah, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand, from their left, and also much cattle. God's sovereignty and our call to evangelize are married in beautiful harmony in this book, in in this story. See, our God is gracious. Our God is merciful. And Jonah understood that. Jonah knew God to be long-suffering. He knew knew him to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He knew that, that God does not delight in bringing disaster upon people. Just as the Lord desired to see the people of Nineveh repent and turn to him in faith, he desires to see our neighbors and the nations come to him as well. That's who our God is. He is gracious and merciful, long-suffering, slow to anger, not delighting in destroying the lives of people. My prayer is that as we work through Jonah's story, that our eyes will be open to the vast lostness that is all around us. I hope we'll begin to see our neighbors as Jesus sees them, people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. You see, we're going to go through this study of the book of Jonah, and we're going to see God's heart for lost people. We're going to see God, God's heart to call his people alongside of him to send them out to preach the gospel. We're going to study this in the book of Jonah, and then in just a few weeks, in September, we're going to take six weeks during our small group hour, and we're going to use that time to train our people, train our members and regular attenders how to share the gospel using a simple format we call the three circles. And so this is going to be an awesome fall for us as we prioritize evangelism, as we prioritize the great commission in our lives. And so my prayer is that we will hear this, heed this, and appropriate this to our lives. The truth is we're in a day, we're in a time and a season where it's difficult to be a follower of Jesus. It's difficult uh, to stand up for, for, for the Bible. And we can get caught up in contentious arguments. It's easy to do that. And at times we need to stand up against the encroachments of liberalism and socialism in our culture. But when we do so, may we not lose sight of the intrinsic value of each and every person. May we not choose sides when it comes to issues on the person, but understand that God loves all people, even those who are far from him. It's good and it's right for us to oppose teachings that are wrong and teachings that are even evil, practices that are ungodly. It's right for us to stand against them, but we cannot allow ourselves to choose sides at the expense of the individual. See, as Christians, if we only share the gospel with those who are good and moral, who in the world would we ever evangelize? There's no one good, no, not one, the Bible tells us. Everyone is far from God. All of us need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is for sinners. It's for the sick. It's not for the healthy. Jonah needed to learn this truth in his own life. So who is this guy? Who is Jonah? Well, the book of Jonah contains no explicit reference to an author, gives us no uh, typical or, or true chronological setting. In fact, if it was not for what we see in 2 Kings chapter 14, we would li- know little to nothing about this historical situation or this prophet. And so let's listen for a moment what the Bible says in 2, 2 Kings chapter 14 about 
Jonah. It says in verse 23, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. That's what the Bible tells us about Jonah. Now, Jesus in the New Testament, the Gospels picks up and, and talks about Jonah, relates the story of Jonah to, to the Gospel and what Jesus was doing. But from a historical standpoint, that's all we're given is the book of Jonah and 2 Kings chapter 14. So this passage here, what we learn in 2 Kings 14, is that it sets Jonah's ministry in the reign of the 8th century B.C. king Jeroboam II. Jonah was a nationalistic prophet who forecast the extension of the frontiers of the northern kingdom, that northern ten tribes of Israel. And Israel's border, uh, we know, had been weakened through early conflicts with Assyria. And so Jonah is called of God, sent out to preach, to prophesy that the, the nation would be strengthened because of his preaching. The borders were strengthened, and Israel was not blotted out as a people at that time. Jonah here in this book was told to go to Nineveh. So this is fast-forwarding uh, many years into the future. The, uh, 2 Kings 14 was an early Jonah. This is a later Jonah. And he's told to go to Nineveh and to preach. Nineveh was a city situated on the eastern bank of the Tigris River opposite the modern city of Mosul there in modern-day northern Iraq. It was an old city dating back to approximately 4500 B.C. And it was one of those principal cities of the Assyrian Empire. In fact, Genesis 10-11 tells us how the city was founded. It tells us that the mighty hunter, hunter Nimrod founded or built this city. It later would become a very powerful and strategic city during the reign of Sennacherib, the great Assyrian king of the 7th century B.C. And so with that background in mind... And Granted, this morning is an overview of the book. I'm giving you a lot more historical stuff than I'm normally going to give you on a Sunday morning as we work through this. But with that background in mind, I want you to see four actions on display right here in this story of God's subversive servant. First action we see is that God spoke. Aren't you thankful that God speaks? God speaks, and he spoke here to Jonah. Verse 1, chapter 1, tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, this son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God speaks here. And as we see here in this verse, couple verses that, that, that this time-honored uh, expression for the communication of God's divine will comes to the prophet. It came in much the same way that it came to other prophets. The word of God came. This is a major emphasis throughout this book. In fact, it's going to be used seven different times in these 48 verses. God was speaking. God was speaking to Jonah. God was speaking through Jonah to a wicked and lost people. Now, we're not told how Jonah received this revelation because the Lord chose different ways to, to speak. Sometimes it was in a vision. Sometimes it was in a, a prophetic word. I mean, there's all types of ways that God would speak. What was clear here is that God did speak. God spoke. And according to Sinclair Ferguson, 
God's word, when he spoke to, to uh, the prophet, came with clarity. He told him to arise and go to Nineveh. There was no way to not understand what he was supposed to do. It was clear. Ferguson also tells us that it sounded a note of reality. It was a great city that he was to go and to preach to. It was not just a small city. It was a great city. And it gave the prophet a heavy responsibility. He was to declare that God knew their sin. First action on display here in this story is God's voice. God is portrayed as one who notices, as a God who is active and involved, and as a God who takes sin seriously. So upon hearing God's voice, we see a second action taken. God spoke. Secondly, Jonah rebelled. Jonah rebelled. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It's interesting, not just interesting, I believe it's significant, that two times in this verse we are told that Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. Not just flee, but he wanted to get as far away from God as he possibly could, far as away from the call of God upon his life as he possibly could. And so he goes down to Joppa, he finds a ship to go to Tarshish, and he goes down in it to get away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah did rise up, but he did not go in the direction he was supposed to go. He went the opposite direction. He went away from Nineveh. See, no reason here is given for the disobedience. He's simply painted as a deserter. He's painted as someone who would not do what God had told him to do. Now, we're going to learn later in, in chapter 4 when he begins to argue with the Lord that this is the reason he left. But at this point in the story, we're just pictured here, we're just presented here that Jonah is a deserter. And by fleeing from the Lord's presence, Jonah is emphatically stating his unwillingness to serve God. See, his action is nothing less than outright open rebellion against the sovereignty of Almighty God. He goes down to Joppa. Joppa was a seaport of Jerusalem. If you were coming to Jerusalem, you would, by sea, you would travel, you would land there in Joppa, and then you would make your way inland to the city of Jerusalem. And so Joppa is today known as Jaffa. It's part of the metro area of Tel Aviv. If you are planning to go to Israel with us in a few months, in later January, early February, we will fly into Tel Aviv, and then from there make our way throughout the country of Israel. And when we fly in, I'm assuming we'll be able to look out the window and see modern-day Jaffa, which was once called Joppa. So Jonah there in that city finds a ship headed to Tarshish. Tarshish most likely refers to the southwestern portion of Spain. It would have been the other end of the known world at that point. And so this city, from Jonah's point of view, was at the other end of the world from Nineveh. God said, Jonah, I want you to get up and go here. Jonah says, I'm going to get up, but I'm going to go there. Jonah rebelled. The narrative suggests determination on the part of the prophet. You see, he very well could have hired the whole ship for his escape. Now, we don't know if he chartered the ship or if he was just a passenger among many passengers. But it seems like there was determination that he had thought this through, that he would decided what he was going to do. In fact, many believe that, that he sold his home, he got rid of his possessions, he left everything behind, set off on a journey at the risk of his life, basically with the mentality of, come hell or high water, I'm out of here. Jonah rebelled. That's the second action on display. 
The prophet was sent to Nineveh in order for the Assyrians to know that God was taking their sin seriously. But his response of rebellion brings about a third action. And that's what we see next. God is going to show Jonah that not only does he take Nineveh's sins seriously, God takes Jonah's sin seriously. And so the third action is consequences ensued. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Consequences were ensuing here. The remaining verses of chapter 1 reveal God's sovereignty in this situation. See, his actions supersede those of his creation. They are over and against the actions, any actions, that we would seek to do or make to subvert the will of God. It's funny how we at times think that we can change the mind of God or change the will of God. Or when God tells us to do something, we think that we can go and do otherwise and there would be no repercussions, be no consequences. And yet Paul told the Galatians something very similar to what we need to hear as we read Jonah today. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked whatsoever one sows, that he will also reap. And so it should not be any surprise to us to read that Jonah's rebellion was met with stormy consequences. Jonah says, I've heard from God. I know where I'm supposed to go, but I'm going to go opposite. And so it should have been no surprise to him. In fact, I think as we read it, he's not surprised that the storm is raging. He gets into the ship. He flees from the Lord's presence and the Lord's command. Therefore, he was in the ship when the Lord's judgment fell upon him. But here's something we need to notice. The judgment of God, the consequences for his rebellion did not just affect Jonah, it affected others. The mariners were fearing for their lives, verse 5 tells us. That's interesting. These veteran seamen who surely had seen any and every storm imaginable are fearing for their lives. They're coming. They're trying to figure it out. They're praying to their gods as pagans. They're casting stuff over the, the edge of the boat, trying to lighten the load. They're doing whatever they can to get themselves to a safe situation. God was set on destroying this ship and everything in it. Eric Redmond, in his commentary, has an interesting point to make here. He says, the Lord will make a storm to wreak havoc and wreck our plans when we readily dismiss obedience to his command. God is serious about our sin. And when we sin, when we rebel against God, it doesn't just affect us, it affects those around us as well. Many times the consequential storm of our own make, is of our own making. It's, it's comprised of the, the, the decisions and the results of those decisions in our lives. At other times, perhaps in this situation, the consequential storm is something specifically tailored by God himself. In either case, the consequences follow the decisions that are made, and they affect not just us as individuals who have rebelled, but those who are around us as well. This is the third action on display. And yet the story's not over. Thankfully, it's not over. There's a fourth action that we need to make sure that we don't miss. And that is grace is given. Grace is given here in the text. Look at chapter 2. Jonah is cast over to the side of the boat. A fish swallows him. He begins to realize why he's in the situation he is in. And in verse 10, it says that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah hears from God again. He goes to Nineveh. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh, chapter 3, 5, believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah 
was graciously given an opportunity to repent of his sins and be forgiven. God had not given up on Jonah. God continued to pursue him. God continued to offer grace to him, to be merciful toward him. See, grace is evident throughout this entire story. God could have easily killed Jonah. God could have uh, just wiped his hands of the prophet of God. He, he could have, at the moment he turned away from the, going to, to, to Nineveh, the, the moment he went down to Joppa, the minute he got into the ship, God could have wiped his hands. He could have killed him in the storm. He could have killed him as he was floating in the sea. He could have killed him in the great fish. And yet in each and every situation, grace was extended. God was merciful. God was not giving Jonah what he deserved. He deserved judgment. He deserved punishment. He deserved the consequences for his decision. And instead, God was moving the prophet to a place of repentance and faith. He was using those consequences to move his heart to where he needed to be. Graciously allowed him to participate in the preaching to Nineveh. God could, even if God didn't kill Jonah in this moment, surely we would think that, God, that Jonah had disqualified himself from the ministry, disqualified himself from the, the call of God upon his life, and yet that's not the case. The word comes a second time to Jonah, and he gets to go and he gets to preach. At the same time, we see in this story God graciously bringing those rough pagan mariners to a place of reverence and worship. They're calling upon their gods, their idols in the midst of the storm. They're trying to figure out how to fix this situation. They're saying that our worship's not working because our idols are not listening to us. Jonah, you pray to your God. And they see God move in that moment. And so what we see at the end of chapter 1 is that these mariners are coming to a place of reverence and worship, fear of, of holy God, recognizing that he is the one true God. God has also revealed himself to the Ninevites. He's expressed his love to them rather than throwing his hands up and declaring that he tried when Jonah went the other direction. God gets a hold of his prophet. He sends him to Nineveh and there through the preaching of this prophet, maybe preaching while he's kicking and screaming, but preaching nonetheless, God brings grace and mercy to these pagan idol worshipers. He did it all because of grace and mercy. These actions displayed in this story reveal two truths that I think we really need to uh, understand and appropriate into our lives. Here's the first truth I want us to see. God's will cannot be subverted. It's funny that we as human beings think that we can say no to God. It's fun that, funny that we think that we can actually uh, undo what God has already in his uh, sovereign foreknowledge put into place. God's will cannot be subverted. As we read the account of Jonah's rebellion, we cannot help but think of David's words in Psalm 139. We're probably going to reference this, this psalm many times as we work through this book. I want you to hear just a few verses from Psalm 139. Beginning in verse 7, David says this, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day for the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. King David in this psalm reminds us about God. 
It remind, he reminds us what God is like, who God is. We see here the omniscience of God. God is all-knowing. God knows all things. We see here the omnipotence of God, that he is all-powerful. We see here the omnipresence of God. He is present everywhere, all the time. Jonah knew this, and yet he still rebelled and sought to subvert the will of God. God never changes, neither does his will. See, no matter how much we run, no matter how much we rebel, no matter how much we work to undermine the will of God, we cannot subvert it. There's a second truth, and this is good. God is gracious and merciful. You see, throughout the story, these two characteristics are on full display. God chooses, think about this with me, God chooses to respond to Jonah, the mariners, and the Ninevites, not as their sin deserved, not as their rebellion deserved, but instead, he, he chooses to extend grace. He chooses to offer mercy. God does not give them what their sin deserves. That's mercy. God chooses to give them what they do not deserve, and that is grace. No matter the depth of our sin, no matter the depth of our depravity, God always offers grace. Forgiveness is available. You see, if you will be faithful to confess your sin, God, according to 1 John 1, 9, will be faithful to forgive your sin. You're never beyond hope. I had a conversation with a guy this week on the phone, not connected to our church from another state. I believe he's called twice to our office in the last month or so. One time, uh, Pastor Ricky was talking to him for uh, quite a while, and then I had an opportunity to speak to him this week as well. Here's what I learned from that conversation. This man is so overwhelmed by his sinful decisions, he believes he's beyond hope. Quoted me all kinds of verses from the Bible that talk about condemnation. And the Bible does say that our sins condemn us right? Bring us under the just judgment of a holy God. But he never once quoted a verse speaking of hope, speaking of forgiveness, speaking of grace, speaking of the fact that God offers and desires to give him freedom from sin. We're never beyond hope. The Bible tells us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see here in this truth that God offers grace and mercy. So, in light of all of that, how should we respond to God's call? You see, Jonah responded. We all, we all will respond in some form or fashion. So how should we respond to the call of God upon our life? What should we do when, when God begins to speak to our lives? When you begin to sense that there's some decision that I need to make to be made in my life, that I need to make in my life, how should we respond to God's call? I'm going to give you four, or I should say three things real quickly here. How do we respond to God's call? First of all, respond immediately. I want to direct your attention to chapter 3, verse 2. Jonah has come out of the well. God reiterates the call upon his life. Verse 2, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. It's the same calling that he had received in chapter 1. But here we learn that the response was to be immediate. The command of Jonah was to arise and go. God didn't say, I want you to think about it. God didn't say, I want you to ponder this. God didn't say, I want you to consider this in the future. He says, arise and go. It's present. It means we need to do it now. It's an imperative, not a suggestion. It was to be obeyed immediately without delay. You see, God's call to us today is no different than it was for Jonah. When we hear from God, our response should be immediate and without delay. Every single Sunday we have an opportunity to respond. We'll have an opportunity in just a moment 
We come to the end of the service after the preaching of the word of God. We believe that it's important that we respond to the word. What is the word saying? What is the word teaching us? What is the word leading us to do? What decisions need to be made? In those times, we need to make an immediate decision. We sh- there should be no delay. If God is calling, for instance, someone who's lost and, 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 and dead in sins and trespasses, as the Bible would tell us, they, they're without a relationship with Jesus Christ, the response ought to be immediate obedience, an immediate coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. So in just a moment, we'll have a time of response. Now, you're not in the house with me. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but I am going to ask you to respond. I'm going to ask you to, to send a message and, and, and do something with the decision God is telling you to do, whether that's a, a message to our office. You can email us. You can send us a direct message. You can uh, contact one of our elders, your small group leader. Make sure that you're responding immediately if you need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you're a follower of Jesus, if he's pointing out sin in your life, immediately confess, repent, receive forgiveness. He's calling you to do something. Put your yes on the table. Don't think about it. Put your yes on the table. Sign the blank page and say, Lord, my life is yours. You fill it in. Response should be immediate. There's a second way to respond. We see it in verse 3, and that is obediently. Chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah obediently followed God's command. He got up. He traveled to Nineveh. And what God told him to do, he was now doing. He's preaching there in the city. Now, when God speaks into your life, your response must always be one of obedience. And what do we know about obedience? It's not delayed. I tell my children all the time, delayed obedience is not obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Because I'm telling you to go do it, and I'm not saying when you get around to it, I'm saying go do it now. So if you delay, you're not obeying. God calls us and tells us to obey, to be obedient in our walk with him. There's a third aspect to how we should respond, and that is faithfully. We respond immediately, obediently, and faithfully. Chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah preached the message of repentance. Now, we know the rest of the story. We've kind of brushed over it earlier. We know that we get to chapter 4, and, and Jonah's not happy about the results. He preached maybe reluctantly at that point. He's definitely reluctant when it comes to the results of his preaching. And so in all of this, because of the dialogue he has with God, what we learn is that we ought to be faithful to the call that God has on our life, faithful to the call that God is and the decisions God is leading us to make. Our hearts should be in them. We should put our yes on the table and be happy about it, responding and following God faithfully. It should be full of faith and energy. You know, a couple weeks ago when I was adrift in the sea with the dolphins, I kind of blown the story a little out of proportion maybe um, when I say adrift, but it really it kind of felt like that. I was being sucked out uh, to sea and couldn't do anything about it because I felt helpless. When I was out there, I felt like I could not make any progress at all. The water was working against me. But it was only when I began to work in the same direction as the current that I began to move. I at first was trying to swim sort of across the current, trying to move back to where uh, our folks were on the beach, but I was making no headway. But when I began to go with the current, that's when I began to make some progress and move toward the beach, move toward the shore. Jonah learned the same truth. 
He learned that running from God and seeking to subvert his will is a fight that he was doomed to lose. You see, Christian, we need to understand this. We need to understand that we have the propensity to be subversive in our own walk with the Lord. How subversive are you? How often do you tell God no? Maybe you don't outright tell God no, but in your actions, you're saying no. How often do you do the opposite of what you know to be God's will for your life? Those are questions we need to ponder. Those are thoughts that we need to think through. Those are decisions that we need to make. We need to respond to the Lord immediately, obediently, and faithfully. I love that this story of Jonah is not just for followers of God. It's about a whole lot more people than just Jonah. See, there were many sinners who come to a saving knowledge of God's grace here in these four chapters. You've got those mariners who are on the ship. We don't know how many of those were. Uh, how many, we don't know how many mariners were on the ship. We just know there was a lot. We don't know how many people were in, in Nineveh that turned to the Lord, but we do know that the Bible tells us there's 120,000 people there in the city. And a great movement of God took place there. Many of them came to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Perhaps there's someone listening this morning on this live stream that today you would say, I am represented by the mariner. I'm represented by the Ninevites. Now, I'm not, I may not be a, a, a pagan idolater. I, I'm not worshiping some sort of idol somewhere, but I don't have a relationship with the Lord. I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never asked him to forgive me of my sin. I've never put my full trust in him and him alone for salvation. Today, you need to be like those mariners, worshiping the Lord, turning to the Lord. You need to be like those in Nineveh who heard the preaching of the judgment against their sin and turned in repentance and faith to the Lord. You need to believe on the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's what the word literally means. And here's some good news that the Bible tells us. Good news is that God loves you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you grew up on or any of those classifications that we may as humans put out there on ourselves. God doesn't care about all that. You're created in the image and likeness of God. God created you with purpose and he created you on purpose. He delights in you. That's the good news of the Bible. But there's some bad news too. And the bad news is, is that we're all broken. Sin has broken us. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That design and purpose that he created us for has been marred and broken because of sin. We try to put ourselves back together and we, we do all kinds of different things. But all it does is make us more and more and more broken. I'm sure you can understand that. But the best news of the gospel is this. That where there was no way, God made a way. He himself came to the earth in, in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died as a perfect sacrifice so that he could pay the penalty for all of our sins. The Bible tells us that he took our sins. He bore them in his body and his blood was shed for the forgiveness, to pay the penalty, the debt of that sin. So God the Father doesn't have to exhaust his wrath on your sin because it's already been exhausted on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. And today, like these mariners, today, like these Ninevites, we need to hear the judgment against our sin, see the grace and the mercy of God that's being extended to us, and seek after the Lord. Turn to him, call upon his name. I hope you have done that in your life. But if you have not, what would keep you today from giving your life to Jesus, asking him to forgive you of your sins, and being transformed, being made new? I told this guy on the phone the other day, 
One of, the, one of the most beautiful things about the gospel is that the Bible tells us that when we come to Jesus and he forgives our sins, and they are many, right? We've all got a ton of sins in our life. But he removes them as far as the east is from the west. And here's the beautiful thing. He remembers them no more. I always think about that. How can sovereign God, who knows absolutely everything about everything, not remember our sins? Here's the idea. He chooses not to remember them, not to hold them against us. Why? Because they've been forgiven. They've been redeemed. They've been done away with, blotted out of our lives. That's what Jesus comes to do. And if you're a Christian today, Man, isn't that great news to think that the Lord has changed your life, transformed your life, and now we are in relationship with him, and we have an opportunity to walk with God, to be used by God, to take that wonderful message to the neighbor next door, to take that wonderful message to the the person who works across the office from us. Our students here, we're about to go back to school. That's a message that you get to take back to your classmates that need to know that there's hope in this world, need to know there's a God who loves them. Over the next several weeks, as we work through this story, we're going to see God's grace and mercy on full display. My prayer is that we'll take it and we'll share that with the people right around us. This morning, how should you respond? Well, first of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, God impressing upon your life something that's not right. Is there an area of your life that, that God has called you to or an area of sin that God has pointed out? And today, if so, you need to respond. You need to do so immediately. You need to do so obediently. And you need to do so faithfully. If you need to pray with someone, talk with someone about that decision, uh, reach out to someone, your small group leader, an elder in our church, one of our deacons, one of our staff, myself. Send us a message, give us a phone call, text us, do something, but respond in faith and obedience today. If you're a a person who today, you you need a relationship with Jesus Christ, the same thing for you. Turn to the Lord. Don't allow another moment to pass. I love when I think back, back to 1997 when the Lord brought me to a saving knowledge of himself. That was the decision that uh, I could run away from. It was a decision I had to make. I, I feel like there was no other way, another thing I could do but give my life to the Lord in that moment. I'm so thankful that I did. I just simply called upon the Lord. Lord, I, I understand the gospel from a knowledge standpoint. I understand what you've done for me. I'm a religious person. I, I've been in church for a long time. I'm teaching Sunday school, for goodness sake. But I'm lost, and I need you. I hope you'll turn to him this morning.